special welcome and a thank you to our guests and to those who volunteered to sit in one of our overflow rooms for service today. Uh, as Tage shared earlier, uh, we hope that we're within two months of getting to phase five, the green light to return to full capacity without needing to adhere to the six feet of distancing between our rows. But until then, until we can add those rows back in, it's just going to mean all of us taking a, just a turn or two down the hall in one of the overflow rooms. So thanks for bearing with us on that. Let me pray for us. Lord, you're big and you love us, and that makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and let the thoughts we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. If you live on the North Shore for long, you'll become acquainted with at least two stereotypes of families in our area. Uh, there's a family for whom family is seemingly nothing. The absentee father who kids, whose kids never really see him because dad's traveling constantly to climb the corporate ladder. Working mom whose kids are an afterthought as she chases her career ambitions or who doesn't work outside the home but still outsources almost all of her parenting in order to get her fitness and beauty and social needs met. Right? So that's on one side. But then you also become acquainted with the family for whom family is everything. Right? These families always seem to find a way to be together. They protect their family time. They spend a lot of weekends at their vacation home. They play board games and watch relatively wholesome movies together. They, the kids all go to each other's events. Uh, their Instagram presence sometimes makes you wonder if they've all been cast in the remake of Leave it to Beaver. Right? So over here, family's nothing. Over here, family's everything. Some single folks, by the way, on the North Shore fall into both of these camps as well. Some who aren't interested in ever marrying, others who are obsessed with the thought, right? So the question for the morning, if we have family is nothing versus family is everything, where did our Lord Jesus advocate that we fall on this spectrum? Would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 12? Matthew chapter 12. We'll be at the end of the chapter. This is week five of our eight-week series, Jesus versus Idols, in which we're looking at times when Jesus confronted objects of worship in people's lives. And the thing is, we've been seeing over these past few weeks that these idols, they usually aren't bad things, actually, right? Instead, they're good things that we tend to sinfully make into ultimate things. Here are the few of the working definitions that we keep coming back to week after week. Idolatry is trusting in created things rather than the creator. An idol is something in creation that claims the place in my heart that only God should have. And we've been saying an idol is anything in your life that's so central to your life, you can't have a meaningful life if you lose it. Like you say, like, if I have that, then my life will have value. Then my life has meaning. And if I would lose that, I don't know how I would live. So in the past weeks of this series, we've examined the idol of wealth, the idol of position or rank, uh, the idol of happiness. Today, we look at the idol of family. And now you say, hey, Tim, like, we're fine if you want to challenge us on the importance we place on family, but on Mother's Day? <laughs> and I know, and I'm sorry about that. And maybe it was a poor decision. If so, I apologize. Um, but just thought, you know, while we're already thinking about family, celebrating family on this day, why not 
also take this opportunity to calibrate family correctly in its place. It's, it's very important, but yet not ultimate place in our hearts. That's the goal. Uh, Matthew 12, right? So over the last couple of chapters leading up to this passage, Matthew has been highlighting the wide variety of responses that people have had to Jesus. Some folks are thrilled about what Jesus is teaching and the miracles he's performing. Many others are furious at him. Before Matthew starts laying out in chapter 13 how one man might generate such polarizing responses, he concludes chapter 12 with this short story in verses 46 to 50 in which Jesus draws a distinction between some people who are responding to him correctly and others who aren't. So we're about to read this short passage in full before we start to break it down, but one note before we do. We're going to start at verse 46. If you're using the English Standard Version, which is the one we often preach from, you might notice something a little odd as you follow along. Namely, that it goes from verse 46 to 48 without a verse 47. Do you see that? That's because this is one of just a handful of times in Scripture in which uh, the one set of ancient manuscripts includes the verse and the other set doesn't include the verse. So if your version that you're using uh, doesn't include verse 47, you'll still probably find it included in a footnote there. And you'll notice that the story is actually fundamentally the same with or without verse 47. But because of the way verse 48 begins in Greek, and I won't belabor the whole point, but I happen to be convinced that verse 47 is original and that a scribe left it out somewhere along the way because he was copying it down. And you see verse 46 and 47 end almost the exact same way in Greek and thought he already copied it. So uh, for that reason, I'm going to go ahead and read verse 47 as part of this passage. So follow along with me as I read. And especially notice what's said here about family. Matthew 12, 46. While he, Jesus, was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and your brothers are standing outside asking to speak to you. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. In this text, we have an assumption and a correction. An assumption and a correction. So first we look at the assumption, which is held by perhaps many in the crowd, but is articulated by this one man. And then we'll look at the correction that Jesus provides. Assumption, correction. First, the assumption. Assumption is that family should take precedence over everything else. Family should take precedence over everything else. Verses 46 and 47. Let's look at those again. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside. So apparently Jesus is inside a house. They're asking to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and your brothers are standing outside asking to speak to you. There seems to be some sort of expectation here, right? That Jesus will want to press pause on his teaching to do something about the fact that his family is outside the door waiting, they're waiting outside, right? And, and that seems reasonable enough, doesn't it? Isn't that what any focus on the family Christian or even any decent non-Christian would do in this situation? At least one guy in the crowd seems to assume so, right? So he gets Jesus' attention. Hey, your mother and brothers, they're outside trying to speak to you. Before we take a look at what happens next, um, let's compare notes for a moment 
on Jesus' relationship with his family and where that's at at this point. Jesus is in his early 30s. His mom is there outside the door in this story. That's Mary. His adoptive father, Joseph, is probably dead. Uh, that's, most scholars think that's why Joseph isn't mentioned at any point in Jesus' adult life. And Jesus also has several half-brothers and sisters who were born after him to Mary and Joseph. So we're looking right now at Matthew's account of this story, but Mark also tells this story, and his version fleshes out a little bit of this story that we don't have in Matthew's gospel, namely why Jesus' family tracks him down on this occasion. Uh, we get that in Mark chapter 3. Take a look at what Mark 3 shows us about the attitude of Jesus' family toward his ministry at this point. Here's what it says. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, he is out of his mind. Imagine that, right? At this point in Jesus' ministry, uh, Mary... And Jesus' half-siblings, presumably including James, who will go on to take a leading role among all of the Jerusalem church in Acts 15. And he'll write a book of the Bible in the future. At this point, they think Jesus has lost his mind. This has all just become too much. The crowds, the celebrity status, the controversy, it's gone too far. So they say, we've we got to do something. Someone's got to bring him to his senses. Before he naively gets himself into real trouble with this wrong sort of powerful people. Now, we learn that from Mark's gospel. Right? Uh, for Matthew, why Jesus' family has come on this occasion doesn't seem to be essential for what he, Matthew, is trying to highlight here. Namely, Jesus' bigger message about the place of family in the life of the person who intends to follow him. In other words, Matthew's more interested in showing us the underlying lesson that no matter the specifics of why Jesus' family is here on this particular occasion outside the door, Family just may not be Jesus' top priority. Okay, so we ready for a challenging personal question already? To what degree do we share the assumption that it's honoring always to put family first? Honoring to God. To what degree do we share the assumption that it's always honoring to God to put family first? In Matthew's telling of this story that we're looking at, Here's the form that this assumption takes. Well, well, surely Jesus will put his teaching on hold, right? To talk to his family members who came here seeking a conversation with him. What might that same assumption look like today? Maybe it looks like this. <clears throat> yeah, I know it might be good to take a young man or young woman in the church under my wing, but I just can't do that because... My own kids have sporting events almost every night of the week, and I'll never miss one of my kids' games. Family first. Or, maybe, you say, yeah, I know it'll be really good to invest in our church family, especially to invest in those who are living far away from their families by breaking bread together, maybe, but, but we don't eat lunch with people after church on Sundays because Sundays are our protected day for family. Family first. Or, maybe, you say, I know in my head that my neighbors, they're on a trajectory that, if unaltered, will take them straight to an eternity in hell. I know that. And I know that we are the only believing family on the whole block and likely their only potential exposure to Christ. But we can't hang out with them on summer weekends. 
because summer weekends are for going up to the cottage. Family first. Now listen, I literally just got back from a really great family vacation. Um, So I'm certainly not implying that there's no validity in going to your kids' games or taking a Sunday afternoon for just the family, for heading up north for a long weekend. Not at all. There are times for those very reasonable considerations to win out. All I'm trying to remind us of is that what's reasonable doesn't always equal the will of God. Not always. After all, verse 47, surely Jesus can take a quick break from his teaching in order to give his family some time with him. That was a reasonable assumption. But does Jesus think that this reasonable assumption lines up with the will of God in this instance? Let's see his correction. That's our second section of the text, verses 48 to 50. His correction is that doing the will of God should take precedence over everything else. So family should take precedence over everything else. Doing the will of God should take precedence over everything else. Let's read that in verses 48 to 50. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister. And mother, I want to draw out two major observations here in this second section of the text. One, there's a spiritual family. It's composed of people who don't just pledge allegiance to the Father, but who also live in accordance with his will. I'll say that again. There's a spiritual family composed of people who don't just pledge allegiance to the Father with their lips, but who also live in accordance with his will. In other words... Jesus isn't talking here in these verses necessarily about those who would say, I'm Christian because my parents are Christian. Or those who would say, I'm Christian because church is kind of the social scene in my town. Or I'm Christian because that's what good members of my political party do. Instead, Jesus has in mind those who would say, I'm Christian because I'm so grateful that I've been adopted into the family of my heavenly father that I'm earnestly seeking to live in the way that he prescribes. Those people compose a spiritual family. You see that? Here, my mother and brothers, forever who does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. The group of disciples, by the way, that Jesus is pointing to here when he says these are my brother and sister and mothers, which, by the way, is a group that's much bigger than the 12 because there are sisters included. Is this group perfect? Are they perfectly obeying the Father's will? We have plenty of stories in the Gospels where they seem to be kind of fumbling around. The 12 do, at least. Yet, despite the imperfection of his followers, Jesus recognizes that they've made a fundamental commitment to follow him. And so he praises them in verses 49 and 50, calling them, you guys are people who do the will of the Father. And he indicates that they thus are showing themselves to be part of his spiritual family. I don't know who needs to receive those words this morning. But I know that I needed to let those words from Jesus wash over me this week, personally. I had to let myself hear Jesus saying about me, here is my brother, pointing to me. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother. So, okay, spiritual family, right? So what does this look like for us? I want to ask that by way of a two-part question. Okay, first... Does church feel like family to you? I want to ask that. Does church, this church, 
feel like family to you? Not do you believe in your head that we are a family. Do you experience this group of believers here at North Sub as a family? Some of you I know have left more anonymous churches along the way seeking to experience family, but just because we are maybe a smaller church than some others doesn't mean that there will automatically be family here. So have you found family here at North Sub? Okay, so I want to know that answer. But also, let me turn that question on its head to ask a question I'm maybe even more interested in hearing your answer to, and it's this. How are you making church feel like family to someone else today? How are you and I making church feel like family to someone else today? What are we doing to help someone experience church as the family that we truly are, according to Christ? And I don't think I'm taking a cheap shot or overgeneralizing by pointing out that suburban evangelical churches in general, like ours, haven't always been successful in earning a reputation as the place in town to go to be accepted into a loving familial community. We believe in theory that church should feel like a family, but that hasn't been the experience of everyone who has tried out a church like ours. So, when a young person in the church finds herself wrestling with hard questions, right, experiencing some doubts, yearning to taste the beauty of a true community, she wants it so bad. But instead, she's greeted at the church door with maybe some side-eyed glances about her outfit while she overhears conversations out in the lobby uh, in which Christians are mocking people with different political views. Meanwhile, her gay and bisexual friends at school are showing nothing but acceptance for her, just as she is with all her complexities, right? Is it really shocking if, over time, she starts to find herself identifying more with the LGBT community at her school than she does with her church? And listen, I'm not at all minimizing the role of biology or other factors in the very real experiences of same-sex attraction, gender dysphoria, among the one in six Gen Zers who presently are identifying as LGBTQ. I'm not. I'm just zooming in on that hypothetical young woman and asking the question about whether we, here at North Sub, are actually being the family to her that she needs us to be. Our failure to act as family is costing our credibility with this rising generation. And the problem runs even deeper than our tendencies toward bickering or judgmentalism. Listen to Russell Moore's picture of the suburban church. Uh, read this recently. It'll be hard to see unless you're watching online. I'll read it. In too many cases, we have turned congregations into silos packed with countless minivans full of individual families coming to receive instruction and then return to their own self-contained units. The end result, especially in a rootless, hypermobile American culture, is the reality of mothers who are lonely and fear that they're failing but who don't want to say anything for fear of being judged or starting up the mommy wars. Or fathers who are lonely but aren't supposed to signal that they don't know what to do about their son's pornography addiction or their daughter's anorexia. Our churches are often filled with unmarried or divorced or widowed men and women who believe that they are without family because there's no one to stand beside them in the church directory picture. And yet, 
The cross shows us that we need one another. We will never be godly families until we are brothers and sisters to one another. I don't know about you, but that one, I had to chew on that one a little bit. So listen, you and I, we're not responsible for transforming church culture in American suburbia, right? But each of us is responsible for being intentional about the part that each and every one of us plays in shaping the culture of this particular church. Here's one simple starting point. An author I love, Rebecca McLaughlin, she describes her husband's three rules of engagement, he calls them, at their church in Boston, Sunday mornings. Uh, Here's what he says. And a lone person in our gathering is an emergency. Friends can wait. That's number two. Three, introduce a newcomer to someone else. Three rules of engagement for Sunday morning. And a lone person in our gathering is an emergency. Friends can wait. Introduce a newcomer to someone else. That's what a family does. Now, I get that there are COVID realities at the moment, okay? So at least for a couple more months, maybe we don't just walk up to somebody and sit next to them without asking, right? But even now, during this period in which we're still waiting and, 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 and following these COVID uh, regulations, if you're willing, there's nothing wrong on Sunday morning with approaching someone you see who is new or alone and saying, hey, it's totally fine if you'd rather keep distance for any reason. Feel free to decline. But if you would like to join me, I do have a spot for you here in my row. Now, if we have more time, I'd like to expand this conversation what this looks like Monday through Saturday. But church member, you have a role to play here every Sunday morning. That's why we've been encouraging those who are reasonably comfortable to come on out to the building instead of watching online. Sunday mornings are not for just receiving a delivery of content, friends. Sunday mornings are for each of us to minister to one another. You have a role to play in this family. There are a hundred one another's in the New Testament. Do you know that? A hundred of them. Encourage one another, bear with one another, forgive one another, on and on. The reality is that most of them are just really hard to practice while we're watching on YouTube. We're so grateful for YouTube. We're going to keep it going for folks that can't join us on Sunday mornings. We're committed to that. But how do I forgive you if we aren't even around each other enough for you to offend me? That's why today, like every year on Mother's Day, uh, we'll be giving flowers as you leave to all the adult women in our church. Uh, Whether or not you're a mother to biological or adoptive children, there's someone here in your spiritual family who could use your mothering. There's a person younger in the faith than you are who could so benefit from you taking her under your wing. That's Titus too, right? We talked about it this summer. Whether or not you're a mother in a natural family, there's a place for you to be a spiritual mother here, adult women. So I told you I was going to draw out two major observations. The first was this existence of the spiritual family. I'll try to hit the second one more briefly. Namely, this spiritual family is actually more ultimate than our biological or nuclear families. The spiritual family is more ultimate than our biological or nuclear families. Where am I getting that? Let's look back again, 48 through 50. There's a contrast here, right? Jesus asks, who is my mother and who are my brothers? These are my mother and my brothers, right? 
while it would be far too extreme to suggest that Jesus is somehow disowning his family in this moment, he's not. It seems like there is a clear priority being established in terms of allegiance, possibly for Jesus, in terms of intimacy. The spiritual family is the truest family. And the thing is, as tempting as it may be to write a statement like this off as, well, that's just something unique to Jesus. That's not for us, right? Doesn't the Apostle Paul say in 1 Corinthians 7 that since the time is short, Christians who have spouses should live as though they had none? Now, it seems like this primacy of the spiritual family over the natural family is an area in which we are called to follow in Jesus' footsteps, right? So let's get right to it. In what concrete ways does your spiritual family take precedence over your natural family? Not talking about every moment and every decision. Talking about over time, what can you see? Whether time, resources, intentionality, can you point to tangible ways? Can I point to tangible ways in which the spiritual family takes precedence? Let me just share for a moment what this has looked like for Sarah and me, right? During our engagement and early marriage, there were some people who loved us enough to gently question some of the less healthy aspects of our obsession with one another as young 20-somethings, right? And so by the time we were establishing patterns as a married couple, uh, we had embraced by God's grace the realization that, hey, this marriage that we're in is actually momentary, in the scheme of things, and our life together has to be bigger than ourselves. Now, have we always escaped the opposite danger over our 12 years of marriage? Far from it. On our fourth anniversary, we realized we hadn't had a meal together, just the two of us, at our home for over four months because we were so consumed in the energizing work of pouring ourselves out for others, especially our, our spiritual family together. So we can fall into that other ditch, and I want to acknowledge that that other ditch does exist, right? Uh, we have benefited from brothers and sisters in the body of Christ keeping us accountable to intentionally carve out good time together to prioritize our relationship. But, while fully acknowledging the existence of this ditch over here, there's another reality that time is short. And if Jesus' lifestyle raised concerns that he was under-prioritizing his natural family, then it may not automatically be a problem if our own marriages raise the same concerns. Here's the thing, and this is a quite important clarification, so hear this. In our passage, Jesus' correction to the approach natural family over everything isn't spiritual family over everything. It's not quite that, is it? Right? What is it? The correction to natural family over everything is do the will of God over everything. Verse 50, whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. As such, doing the will of God in one particular situation might mean dropping everything else for a moment for the sake of investing in your natural family. In another situation, doing the will of God might mean your natural family waits outside the door as they did for Jesus. So it's, if it's possible, and I think it is, that either of those could be the will of God in a given situation, how do we know the will of God regarding what to do in a given concrete moment? How do we know the, what the will of God is for our calendars this week, this month, this year, what we prioritize? And I think that's the question, right? 
And the reality is that if the Bible provided a formulaic answer to that question, we'd just follow the formula instead of humbly seeking God himself. But the Jesus that we see here in this passage and throughout the Gospels, he's, he's operating on something better than a formula, isn't he? Right? He's being led by God's Spirit. That's why he can, in Mark 7, rip into the Pharisees for neglecting their natural families. Right? But then, turn around to say to another group in another setting that anyone who doesn't hate father and mother can't be my disciple. Right? That's why he can... Be so attentive to his mother at the cross, right? Yet, he can leave her waiting here in this passage outside the house in Matthew 12. He's being led by the Spirit in each situation as to the appropriate course of action. There's unfortunately no shortcut to becoming sensitive to that leading of God's Spirit. That sensitivity is cultivated as we are formed in wisdom day after day. By spending time in God's word, learning what his voice sounds like as we hear it on these pages. And as we spend significant time in community with a spiritual family of sisters and brothers who know us well. Who walk with us and who can advise us on where we're missing the mark. We need the word and each other. Because it's not always so easy to identify whether family has become an idol for us, is it? Here are Paul Tripp's helpful diagnostic questions that we keep coming back to week after week. We just keep swapping out the idol. Am I willing to sin for family? If so, it may be an idol, right? Am I willing to sin for family? Do I neglect God's commands in other areas of my life because all my time, money, energy goes here? Right? Second, am I willing to sin if I think I'm going to lose family? Maybe to lose their approval, to lose their compliance, whatever it is. When following Christ is going to cause conflict of some sort, do I take the easy way out, the sinful way out? Third, do I turn to family as a refuge and comfort instead of going to God? Is my life, is my identity built around the idea that one day I'll have the spouse that I dream of or that one day I'll be praised for raising these awesome kids? Our big idea this morning is this. Let's treasure our membership in God's family even over our membership in our natural families. Let's treasure our membership in God's family, even over our membership in our natural families. Family is one of a number of things that is so good, so important, yet competes with Christ for the throne in our hearts. But the Christian life is a fight, isn't it? To treasure the ultimate, such as the personal relationship with God that we get as members of his family. Treasure the ultimate over the good, such as membership in our natural families. Remember those contrasting North Shore stereotypes we started with? Family is nothing, and then family is everything. As far as those two ditches go, most of us here are going to be more tempted, probably, to fall in that second ditch, idolizing family as if it's everything. But friends, our natural families, they were only ever meant to be signposts to something more ultimate. And that goes for those here who find yourselves pretty much in the natural families you dreamed of, and for those here who are yearning to be part of a natural family that's only aspirational right now. Russell Moore and Paul Tripp are both so insightful on this. I've drawn from both of them extensively in this sermon. And they both point out, when we treasure our families above all else, when we put it number one, when we look to our families for our identity, they will always let us down. They will. 
because they, they weren't meant to bear that weight that we put on them in that place. Right? But Moore and Tripp also point out that when our families disappoint us, when our hopes for our families are dashed, as they inevitably will be, that letdown that we experience is actually a gift. It's a gift because it's an opportunity to redirect our worship from someplace it never should have been to where it always should have been in the first place, to the only one who can hold all our hopes and dreams and identities without cracking under the weight. In other words, our family disappointments direct our attention to the cross, the most important moment and passage in the Bible about family. There, as Jesus' torn flesh is fastened to that wood, we see him attending to his mother and making sure she'll be cared for after his death. We see him quoting from Psalm 22, which is a song he would have learned from his mother, a song packed with family language. And we see him in his broken body inaugurating a new family, a spiritual family composed of people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, a family united not by the blood of biology, but by the blood of crucifixion. As such, well, in order to create that family, he had to die under the judgment of his heavenly father, so completely trusting in his father's mercy that he willingly chose to take our sin on himself and to breathe his last under his father's crushing but temporary curse. As such, there's a sense in which certain aspects of our family lives come into sharper focus at the cross, don't they? As we look to that cross, we realize the worst thing that could possibly happen to me is not that I'd die single or that my spouse would leave me or that my kids would walk away from the faith or even that I'd have to bury one of my little ones. None of those are the worst thing that could happen to me. The worst thing that could happen to me is that this, right? That I would die under the judgment of my heavenly father, right? As Jesus did. But that's exactly what's so amazing. If we've been united to Christ, the worst thing that could happen to us has already happened to us. And as a result of our being joined to him in his death and resurrection, Jesus assures us that we are now as close to him as we would be as if he had nursed at our breasts. Friend, if you haven't yet entered into that relationship, if you haven't yet taken your place in Christ's forever family as his brother or sister, why not today? There's a relationship that awaits you that fulfills all the longings that your human family relationships have never been able to fill. Do you hear him inviting you to the family table? For those of us who have taken our place at that family table, let's treasure that relationship with him. It consequently makes us here in this room the truest sort of family with each other. Let's pray. God, we love you. Father, we thank you for adopting us into your family as your children. We thank you for making us sisters and brothers of our Savior, Jesus Christ, to the point where he can say, who are my mother and brothers and sisters? Those who do the will of my Father in heaven. Speaking of us, help us never to lose sight of that. Help us to treasure it this week 
Help us to treasure it as we spend great time with our families today. As some of us grieve and mourn uh, because of loss um, or waiting or disappointment in our families. And as some of us celebrate, and for many of us, as we experience a mixture of those, help all of that, the joys, the sorrows, help it all to point us to the ultimate family, the family that exists in you, purchased by the blood of your son, Jesus. Amen.